This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Valeria Tellez interviews Peter Russell, the author of Seeds of Awakening. Peter Russell is a leading thinker on consciousness and contemporary spirituality. He coined the term global brain with his 1980s bestseller of the same name, in which he predicted the internet and the impact it would have on humanity. He is the author of nine other books, including Waking Up in Time and From Science to God, a physicist's journey into the mystery of consciousness. He studied theoretical physics, experimental psychology, and computer science at the University of Cambridge, and meditation and Eastern philosophy in India, and pioneered the introduction of personal growth programs to corporations, running courses for senior management on creativity, stress management, and sustainable development. His mission is to distill the essential wisdom on human consciousness found in the world's various spiritual traditions and to disseminate their teachings on self-liberation in contemporary and compelling ways. Meet Peter on PeterRussell.com. Here is the interview with Peter Russell. In your own words, who is Peter Russell? Uh, he's this guy who's interested in consciousness and what spirituality is really about and um, exploring it both in terms of understanding and in his own life um, seeing ways in which he can live that better in more open compassionate honest ways yeah that's that's the that's the brief bit. Yeah, how did this interest in spirituality, consciousness, um, got started, Peter? That's, yeah, that's an interesting question for me, because for many people, they had some moment of change or something. It was never like that for me. Um, I think as a kid, I was always interested in the mind. And, you know, I remember as a kid, you know, we're doing things like spinning ourselves around, making ourselves dizzy and all that sort of stuff and playing around with self-hypnosis. So I was always interested in the mind, but I... My calling, academic calling, was as a mathematician. And I went to Cambridge and in England studying mathematics and then theoretical physics. And basically, I loved it and was good at it. But then came this time when I realized that however much physics I did, science was never going to answer the question of why are we conscious? I mean, science can explain ultimately, you know, maybe how the world works, how atoms work, everything. But it 
doesn't have anything whatsoever to say about consciousness. And so I, I changed subjects. I moved into psychology, thinking experimental psychology, which was what is now called neuroscience, thinking understanding the brain would help me understand consciousness. But they basically weren't interested in consciousness. And I realized the people who were really interested in exploring consciousness were the you know, the yogis, the monks, the spiritual adepts who, you know, chose to sat down, sit down and look within at their own consciousness. And I realized that's the way to explore consciousness, not putting electrodes on the skull, but consciousness is totally subjective. And so that got me interested in meditation and that got me interested in spirituality. I'd actually rejected spirituality as a kid. I decided it was a load of mumbo jumbo. Um, or religion, rather. I rejected religion, and with that, inject, rejected spirituality. And then as I got more into meditation, I realized there was something to all the world's great spiritual traditions, which had got sort of overlaid by all their doctrines and dogmas and stuff. And I became interested in what is the underlying message behind all the different spiritual traditions. So that's really how I got interested in it. I guess the question that comes to mind is uh, spirituality. What is it to you these days? It's a, I mean, the shortest way of putting it is about awakening, um, awakening from the dream world of the ego mind. Um, and that's why a lot of spiritual teachers talk about awakening from the dream. It's, it's um, with the ego mind, we get caught up in our thoughts, our stories about what we need, what other people should do, how I'm going to keep this, all that sort of stuff. And that keeps us locked into certain ways of thinking and doing, and it obscures what I like to call our, our true nature, our true being. And so I see spirituality in general is ways of ways of stepping out of what I call the ego mind. I don't think there's such a thing as ego, and we can talk about that more later maybe, but I don't think there's such a thing as ego, but there's egoic ways of thinking. And I, what I saw way back then was that, you know, the common elements of all spiritual traditions was different practices that could help you step out of the egoic thinking and coming back to as what I call true nature. What do you think life is? That's difficult. Um, and I say it's difficult because there's no clear boundary. If we go back down the sort of evolutionary tree, we could say, you know, simple cells are alive, but are, are viruses alive? They satisfy some of the definitions of life, but not all of them. Um, my my own feeling is this isn't really a definition is that life is a potential that's inherent in the cosmos right from the beginning mm. and as systems get more and more complex then we begin to see that potential for what we call life beginning to emerge so i, I think it's something which i think you could say you know the cosmos has the potential for life deep within it and what we call the origins of life and not so much the origins of life, but they are the levels of you know, complexity, whether it's in a virus or a cell, where it becomes a, apparent that it is alive, that it is feeding, it is reproducing, you know, satisfying the various characteristics that scientists define as life. Do you think there is a clear purpose? I don't think there's a universal cosmic purpose. I think Lots of people do think so, and they all have different purposes. So, you know, which one is which one is right? There's probably, you know, seven billion different purposes of life on the planet at the moment. So I don't I, I don't think there's an ultimate truth. 
I say what you know what I see the purpose is, but I don't see it's like that is necessarily the ultimate truth. Other people have different views, and I would define the purpose of life is is to be happy, basically to be content, to well to stay alive on a, you know on a very fundamental level. The purpose of life is to stay is to stay alive. All organisms strive to survive, and if we're surviving. We're happy. If there's some threat to our survival, we're unhappy, and that and that threat to our survival that makes us unhappy is the motivation to do something about it, so that we can return to being happy. So, so it's two things, and they're related. The purpose you could say on a big level is to survive, and on an individual level, we do that by finding ways to be happy, knowing that if we're happy, we're, we are surviving. So I would say. The personal purpose is how to how to be happy, which is, you know, comes back to what I was touching on before. How do we be free from the stuff that makes us unhappy? And that this might be a good time to ask you what that is and how we can learn to identify egoic thoughts. Yes, yes, good. Um, as I say, it comes it comes from survival. So the egoic thinking is basically it's survival based thinking. And, you know, on one level, it's, you know, I need to, I shouldn't step in front of that bus or it'll kill me sort of thing. Right. But so there's physical survival, but it also gets sort of transferred into psychosocial survival. So the ego mind starts thinking, what is that person thinking of me? Are they criticizing me? Do they like me? What's the right thing to do? So we start, basically the ego mind is looking at what do I need to do in the world or stop happening, you know, to keep things the same. But it's always looking at, what do I need to do in the world ultimately to be happy? And that's the motivation of the ego mind looking at what do I need to do in the world to be happy? And most of it is, you know, to do with materialistic thinking. And it doesn't recognize that it is actually creating the unhappiness. It's, it's a strange thing. The ego mind is creating discontent. And then it looks out there into the world to say, okay, how can I get rid of the discontent? And so it looks at what to do. So how to recognize it? Um, I find two useful things for me. One is whenever the ego mind is operating, there's always a very slight sense of background mental tension. And it's because it, it's trying, it's wanting to get things done. And often the thoughts it's creating have their own sort of tension. So one way of recognizing it is, is this thought that I'm having, does it have any sort of tension associated with it? Or is it just totally open and free? And the second way, which again, I find helpful is the ego mind is always insistent. It knows what to do. And that's its job. Its job, its job is to be insistent. I mean, if, if, you know, if the ego mind says, well, there's a bus coming at me, but I don't quite know whether it's going to hit me or not. I haven't worked out the trajectory. Maybe I'll be okay here. Maybe I won't. The ego mind is get out of the way. It's like it's got a job to do. It has to be insistent. But this spills over into our you know, regular daily lives. It's like, oh, I, I, I've, I've got to say this to this person. I, I must tell them this because it's really important, etc. And that's the insistency, you know, I've got to do this, I've got to say this, or whatever it is. When you notice that insistency, I find that's a time to step back and say, ah, maybe I'm in ego mind. And maybe I'm in that, I'm in an egoic way of thinking. 
I mean, I'm thinking. So, so that's that's a good way for me is when there's when it when there's something insistent, yeah. that insistency is a sign that I'm caught in egoic thinking. So a lot of people speak of balance and harmony. Do you think that there is such a thing of that state of mind of balance? Oh yes, yes, definitely. Um, there's several ways of thinking of balance. I mean, one we talked about the ego mind. We need to have a balance between the ego mind and being free of it. There's times where we, there's times where we need to be involved in it. It's, it's really useful. I mean, I, I don't want to put the ego mind down. It's really useful. It's made us what we are. It's great. And we can spend far too much of our life in that mode of thinking. So, you know, a lot of people may spend, you know, all their waking time in that that mode of thinking is basically a mode of thinking which is trying to control things that they're in that control mode of thinking so there needs to be a balance there needs to be times when we're in that mode of thinking where it's really useful and times when we can step back and relax just like ah here i am yes i just with letting letting go of that particular story the ego mind always has some some particular story it's saying and it's about so stepping back from the ego mind is really just pausing, recognizing the story that's going on and saying, okay, I don't need to follow that thought anymore. Here I am. And, and just relaxing back into that beingness. So that, that, that's one sense, that's one sense in, w- in which there needs to be a balance, a balance in terms of time. And then I think there's another sense of balance, which is when we are just back in touch with, with ourselves more, we are more balanced. We're not going to be so easily thrown off by things. If we're caught up in anxiety or anger or frustration or something like that, it's easy to get thrown by events. Uh, but if we're if we're just in touch with ourselves and more, you know, just at home in ourselves, relaxed, open, we're not going to be thrown off balance so much. So it's a way of stabilizing our inner balance. And I wonder how can we understand the difference between these states of being, states of mind, and also those that is actually positive, being determined, assertive, resilient, trying to make something happen in a very active way. (laughs) So how do we know the difference when it's not the egoic thoughts, but just trying to make something happen that we believe in? Yes. I mean, that's when when there's just a natural you're talking about a natural egoism, just yeah. in order to, yeah, yeah. Trying to um, make things happen, right? Yes, yes, it's, yeah. it's a natural egoism, which, as I say, is, is absolutely fine. It's essential. When we're stuck in the ego, I think it comes back to those two things I was mentioning before. Is there a sense of tension in the mind or a sense of insistency? If you're just naturally in the ego functioning mode, I think there's a greater sense of clarity. There's less urgency. You're just working things out. It's like, okay, you can sit down. What, what do I need to do, you know, today or something in order to achieve a certain goal? That sort of egoic thinking is fine, but that sort of egoic thinking tends to be more relaxed. It's, it's the fixation I'm talking about when right. you get absolutely fixed on something. Oh, wow. That also makes me think about addictions. That might be it too, right? Way of knowing. Yes, we get... The ego mind does lead to a lot of addictive patterns. I'm not talking about chemical addictions or substance addictions, but we we get addicted to things we think will make us happy. And so we each of us has our own personal thing like, you know, 
what I need, you know, what I need to make me happy is eating delicious food. That's my, you know, and we get fixed on that. It's like, I, you know, I can't be happy with this food. It's like, it's not very tasty, maybe nutritious, but not very tasty. And this may not be the best example, but that that's how we get addicted or shopping or something like that, or television or, or different things or watching sport. We get the addiction that, the definition of addiction is you cannot be happy without it is, is one way of looking at it. And, and it keeps driving us. It keeps driving us to do things which may not be that healthy for us. And I think, you know, in our culture, advertising just preys on that the whole time. It's telling us you can't be happy without this. You can't be happy without this. And so it, it's feeding that sort of addictive psychology. And, you know, so, so we, you know, we go out, we do something, we buy ourselves, you know, a new jacket or something, we feel good. And then the effect wears off, that fix wears off. And so we go out and buy something else and end up with a wardrobe of things that, you know, we only half use, well, hardly ever use sometimes. What comes to mind too, it's wisdom. Yeah, wisdom. I think we all have wisdom inside. We have a deep wisdom. I, I define wisdom as sort of knowing right from wrong. That That is basically wisdom, knowing what is helpful, what is kind from what is unkind. We And we all have that intuitive wisdom within us, but it gets blocked. It gets overshadowed by, you know, by what we're talking about, this sort of self-centered thinking. It, it blocks our natural capacity. How did you become a writer, Peter? And what was the intention and inspiration for writing your book, Seeds of Awakening? <laughs> yeah. I love that. Title. Right, yes. Um, I never thought I would be a writer. As I said, I was a, mathemati I was a mathematician, and the only words the mathematician ever writes are QED, <laughs> or, or, or therefore. <laughs> yeah. right. That's it. That's it. As a mathematician, I wrote a few postcards home, but... I didn't, I didn't do any writing. And at school, English was one of my worst subjects. And then after I got interested in meditation, I actually went to India and studied there for a while. And I just had this impulse to write a book on meditation because I felt there was a lot of stuff being said about meditation from people who didn't really know it firsthand. And I just wanted to sort of lay, lay down what I, what I felt it was about. And so I just had this impulse to write a book on meditation, not knowing what I was doing. And I wrote out a synopsis and a friend by, who I met by chance again, took it to an agent. The agent had a conversation with a publisher. The publisher said, great. And I found myself with a contract and writing a book. And then a bit later, I was writing a book on the brain. And my agent said, you know, you've got a career ahead of you as a writer. And I said, what? You know, come on. He said, yes. He said, you have, you know, you write really clearly. And I thought about it and realized it was actually my training as a mathematician. I mean, I'm, you've seen some of my writing. I'm, I'm not a great poetic writer. I don't use, you know, beautiful turns of phrase. I'm, I'm a, you know, fairly straightforward. But what I do is I make it reasonable. So I make ideas about consciousness, meditation, spirituality, these sort of things. I make them reasonable. And that's my mathematical training. So I'm sort of, I'm speaking like a mathematician in words and ideas and about, particularly about consciousness and things. So that, that led me into a writing career. And I've now done like 10, 11 books, something like that. And Seeds of Awakening 
it just came to me a couple of years ago, and it consists of various little pieces, some of which I had written in the past, some of which I wrote then. But the idea was just to put together a series of short essays um, around the subject of awakening. Because I think, you know, a lot of people these days, you know, they look at a book and think, oh my God, this is huge. And they read the first two chapters and put it down. And I wanted to give people something which they could just, they, you know, each one is about one, two, three pages, not much more. They could read it and get something from that particular essay. And they're all independent, although there's certainly a theme there that links them. And yeah, so that was the idea, just to produce a series of short essays on how I saw awakening and different aspects of awakening, and some you know, meditation or um, you know what is love, that sort of thing. So yeah, that's how it came to be. Yeah, and it's I love the clarity of that, and it's simple. I absolutely love I love the complex too, obviously in everything, but the the simplicity of some writers is just remarkable to me. And you are one of them, very clear and simple to understand, but for those who are familiar with the subject, of course, because you're talking about uh, very complex topics that I am in love with. <laughs> <laughs> so love, yeah. What is love to you? Ah, there's different aspects of it. Um, I think ultimately it comes back to what we've been touching on in terms of true nature. I think our true underlying nature is love. Um, one Indian teacher used to call love the secret sensation of the self. Secret, not because we weren't telling people about it, but because we didn't know it. It's like how, how our self feels, our self, when we get in touch with our self, it feels loving. The ego, the ego mind is not loving. The ego mind is controlling, it gets judgmental, it certainly likes things. It certainly can say, oh, no, I, I love living in this house. But that's the ego mind talking. It's not, it's not that love for life, for other people, which was a much deeper thing. And that comes out, I think, when we step out of that you know, incessant thinking and relax and get back in touch with ourselves. we begin to notice there's just this very quiet quality of love. And that begins to just gently sort of come out and influence how we, how we treat other people, how we act in life. So I think, you know, basically at the fundamental level, it, love is what we are deep, deep down. But we don't, most of the time we don't notice it. And so we start, we go out looking for love. We, we go out looking to somebody to love or something. And we, we talk about, you know, oh, I've fallen in love with this person, which is, I've made this person responsible for my feeling love. You know, please right. don't change. Right. I, I, I love right. you. Please don't change. <laughs> and I see, you know, my way of looking mm -hmm. at falling in love is when we, when we relax and come back to ourselves, we fall back into love. We just fall back into our own loving nature. And that doesn't mean to say, you know, we, we can't, you know, have a deep, really deep loving relationship with another human being. Of course we can, but just recognizing it isn't the person who does this to us. What they're doing in a way is allowing us to tap into our natural capacity for love. I'm wondering if they call it self-love, which I call it a lot, unconditional self-love. 
how is that different to the idea we have of loving ourselves to loving yourself with the capital S? Right. Yes. Yes. I mean, the self-love, which is loving ourselves, you know, warts and all, all our faults and all our wonderful things, which is certainly good. It allows us to actually um, just appreciate ourselves. But there's a deeper sense of self-love, which is loving let's call it the true self. I don't actually like the word true self, but the, the underlying, maybe the, the pure self. And what I'm talking about by the pure self, just to step back a second, is it's that sense of I, which is always there. I mean, it, you know, how I, you know, there's a sense of I now, which is the same sense of I I woke up with this morning. It was there, you know, 10 years ago, as far back in my life as I can think. There's this sense of me, a deep sense of I, now my, you know, my personality may have changed, my ideas may have changed, my values may have changed over my life. All that's changed, but there's this deep sense of I, like I am, that sense we all know of I am. That's what I call, you know, the pure self. It's not I am Peter Russell, I am British, I am this, that, or other. It's just, it's just I am without being anything. And when we, when we know that deeper sense of that deeper sense of I, I am, we're coming, we're coming back to ourself. And that is where, you know, I was talking about, you know, the nature of that I am is, is love. It's also, its nature is peace. It's okay. When we're in touch with that deep sense of I am, we're in touch with that deep sense of okayness. And that is lovable. So we're, when we when we love our deeper authentic self we're not loving any particular thing about us we're just loving how it feels to be i am and, and that is that is so lovable that sense of i am so that that's i think is the deep deeper level of loving oneself is just loving how it feels to drop back into that sense of just being that makes me think about freedom yeah how do you define freedom would that be it that's one aspect of it. Yes, yes. Um, I think often when we talk about freedom, we're talking about, you know, free will, freedom to, freedom to do something, freedom to make our own choice, that sort of freedom, freedom to. What we're talking about here is actually freedom from. We're talking about freedom from the dictates of our, whatever you want to call it, the egoic thinking or social conditioning, whatever. So it's freedom, freedom from that. So it's not freedom to do anything particular, but it's a sense of freedom from what holds us back from actually just knowing who we are. I love that. And it feels free. It, that, and that's the lovely thing about it. It feels free. When we're in touch with ourselves in that way, it's this sense of, ah, yes, not only do I love it. There's a, there is this feeling of freedom but I'd say not freedom, I can go out and do anything, but it's like I'm free from all that weight, all the stuff I was carrying, all that, all those things I have to do, those shoulds. It's like, no, no, I'm free from all that. I can just be here now. So what are some of the ways, I know meditation, you have a lot of experience with it, and a lot of us are trying to, that as a method to access what we call true nature or the pure self. Is that the best method, would you say? Um, 
I would say yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but again, I'm not, I'm not here to say it's the best method for everybody. It's something which I've certainly found really helpful. I know a lot of other people find help, but there's, there are many other paths. But for me, meditation, the sort of meditation I enjoy is not one of trying to get somewhere or cultivate some higher state of consciousness, but it's basically the meditation of pausing the thinking, stepping out of the thoughts, not following the thoughts. And as we do that, we just find we begin to settle down, become quieter. So it's really about any, any practice that allows the mind to settle down and become quiet. And as we do, as the mind settles down, then we begin to notice what was already there. You know, on one level of what was already there is that sense of I am, which is always there. We begin to notice that, or we begin to notice there's a sense of inner stillness, which I hadn't noticed before. So for me, the essence of meditation is, is about any way which allows the mind to quieten down. But I, the emphasis is on allowing. If you try to quieten the mind, if you try to still it, which is often many practices do, you end up in a sort of almost like a vicious circle, quite because the more you try, mm -hmm. the more yeah. tense you make the mind, the That's more active true. it becomes. And, and so when I teach meditation, I'm really teaching people how to how to let the mind relax. You know, maybe we're, you know, some of us can do that fairly well if we do yoga and things with how to let the body relax, how to let muscles relax. And then it's, it's a more subtle thing of how to let, how to let the mind relax. And part of that is not, not trying to get anywhere, not, not having any expectation of what's going to happen, but just being able to be in the moment. And as I say, the key thing for me is not following the thought. Thoughts come up in meditation. You ask the most experienced meditator, do they have thoughts? And they'll say, yes. But the difference is I don't get caught up in them. I, I, I see a thought, I recognize it, and I leave it. I let it go. So that, that's the way to treat thoughts in meditation is when you, when you notice your thinking, just let it go. Don't follow it any further. If it's important, follow it further after meditation. Oh, but after. in meditation, right. after, if you, in meditation, the key thing for me is just not following the thoughts anymore. And as we do that, just gradually the mind begins to settle down because it's our thinking, which is continual fueling the thought. I'm thinking this, and this reminds me of something else, and I've got to do this today. Oh, I forgot to do that yesterday. Oh, and what, oh, and I, you know, and so and so. All oh, right. And also, I've got to remember this, this on television tonight, whatever yeah, it is. That's true. Just one thought to another, another thought, and that keeps the mind active and keeps that sense of tension. If you just pause, Here's a thought, okay, got you, pause. And like in, in the pause, recognizing, ah, here I am. Another thought comes up, pause. So instead of one thought leading to another and keeping it going, each pause is allowing you just to settle down a little bit quieter, a little bit quieter, a little bit quieter. I'm wondering, Peter, if it's possible to pause thoughts and quiet the mind even during sleep. Is that possible in any way? Have you tried? Um, it's certainly possible if you look at um, you know various teachings, particularly the, the, the Tibetan Buddhists pay a lot of attention to this. Um, I don't have much experience of that, to be honest. Um, it's not a practice I've been able to master. What I do notice during sleep is sometimes I'll wake up in the middle of the night, well, not middle of the night, but sort of two o'clock time, and what I find interesting is 
my thinking mind has settled down. It's become quiet, and I, I wake up. And I actually find that a really useful time just to check in on myself. Okay, what's going on here? Are, are there any tensions in my mind, any tensions in my body? Because the mind is quiet, I, it's a more reflective time where I can sort of learn things about myself. So I, I value that when I wake up and the, the mind has become quiet. Sometimes it isn't quiet when I wake up, it's going, <laughs> but you know, when I do wake up, it's quiet. I value that. But I, you know, I can't speak about actually doing this in sleep. I, I haven't, I haven't mastered that. Haven't, to be honest, I haven't tried that hard either. Right. You know, I, right. I love, I love going to <laughs> yeah, that's another conversation. I would say the exploration of dreams and what they mean exactly, the subconscious. Right, right. Let me ask you this question. Where is consciousness? Is there a location for it? Funnily enough, no. We think consciousness is in the head. If you ask most people where is consciousness, they'll say in the head, in the brain. It seems obvious. You know, the brain is clearly involved with consciousness. You know, you, you affect the brain, damage the brain take drugs, your consciousness will change. So clearly the brain has something to do with consciousness. But I think consciousness isn't anywhere in the world. It's more, more everything we know is in consciousness. I mean, you know, right now, you know, this conversation is appearing in the, in the listener's mind. It's in consciousness. And whatever you're looking at, you know, data is coming in through the eyes and the brain is analyzing it and producing its idea, its image of what is out there. But so what you see, we believe it's out there in the world, but it's actually appearing in consciousness. So in a sense, it's not so much where is consciousness in the world, but our whole world that we know as our experience, I'm not talking about the world out there, but the world of our experience, all that experience is appearing in our consciousness. And it's a tricky thing. I mean, I can say it, it takes a, quite a bit of sort of inner just pondering to begin to realize this is true because the outer world is, is so seductive. Uh, we think it's out there and it is out there. Again, the outer world is out there, but our experience of it is in consciousness. And so what we tend to do, we say, where is consciousness? We, we like to place ourselves, our consciousness at the center of the world, which is here, right here. But it's actually the center of our perceived world. And the, the two major senses for location are vision, number one, and then sound, number two. And our eyes and our ears are around the head. Our eyes in front of the head, our ears are at the side. And so the center from which we look out onto the world or listen to the world is around the head. But as I sometimes like to point out to people, that's nothing to do with the brain being in the head. You know, I like to say, you know, as a thought experiment, imagine you transplanted your, your eyes down to your knees and you put your ears on the side of your knees. You'd be going around the world seeing and hearing the world from your knees and you'd naturally think you know, oh that's where i am i'm in my <laughs> knees but it isn't i mean right. so the idea of consciousness being located in space is the wrong way around of thinking about it that's the space that we know is all an experience within our consciousness and i have heard I'm sure you too, that time and space, they don't exist really the way 
we think they're just concepts and ideas. Yes, it, it's tricky. It's tricky, this. Um, because, you know, from a physics, well, physics doesn't know what time and space are. They have you know, different models and things or whether time does run forwards. Or, anyway, there's lots of confusion in physics. Um, but it's, they're not clear. But in terms of our own experience, well, t time is an easier one to grasp because in some senses, there is only the present moment. There is this, all we ever know is the present moment. That's all we ever know. If we're having a memory of the past, that memory is appearing in the present moment. If we think about the future, what we're going to do tomorrow, that idea about the future, the pictures we have, that's also appearing in the present moment. So you could say we, we only ever know the present moment. So we're, in a way, in the present moment, there's no time. It's outside of time in a way. And yet, within that present moment, we construct an idea of time. You know, we think about our memories. Oh, this, this happened 20 years ago. So we're constructing an idea of time in our mind, in our consciousness, in the present moment. So you, that's why it's a difficult thing because, you know, yes, you know, there's a sense in which time is real. I, you know, I know what I did yesterday and what I'm going to be doing this afternoon. So in that sense, personal time is real, and yet it is all an idea appearing within in the present moment in which there is no time. So it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing, but I think that's what people are pointing about when they pointing out when they say, you know, time doesn't exist. It does exist and it doesn't exist. Depends how you look at it. Do you feel the difference between thoughts, let's say logical, rational thoughts and imagination? In a way, in some way, it's all in our imagination. And I think that's the way I tend to look at it. You know, if you're having a thought, that thought, you know, primarily is words, ideas, it may have images and things, but that's all occurring in the mind in a way. You know, when we're thinking, often our thinking is a conversation we're having with ourselves. Mm. You know, I think, oh, yes, I did this yesterday. I did this. And what if it rains today? It's, it's, a, conversa it's, a, it's a conversation we're having with ourselves in the mind. And in that sense, it is in the imagination. So our thinking is appearing within our imagination. And I'm using imagination in the sort of broad sense here. Um, and I think, you know, what you're pointing to, I would call a particular aspect of the imagination, which is when we, you know, create uh, um, images about things that, you know, haven't happened yet, but could happen or didn't happen, but we would have liked to have happened. So we're imagining, we're imagining situations in the mind. Um, and yes, you can say that that's different from, you know, logical thinking, clear logical thinking. They are different in that sense. And yet they, they are both appearances in our imagination. And so I, I define, I mean, I think I say there's two worlds. There's the world of our direct experience in the moment, which is what I'm seeing, hearing, touching, feeling in the moment. And then there's the world of our imagination, whether it's thinking or images, whatever, which is actually in the past and future in terms of in our mind. Our imagination is really about what has happened or could happen. It's on that sort of created idea of time is where our imagination works in that created idea of time. 
our actual experience in the moment is just our whatever it is is you know our senses are telling us giving us i guess the more precise question is about vision and intuition okay yeah would you say that's still thinking no no not not in no not not in the sense that i've been talking i mean let's just say you know what i call thinking is that conversation we're having with ourselves which does have images and things wrapped up in it um now intuition intuition is a fascinating subject um i think you know we are all open to a, a lot of information that we just we don't know about it we don't know it's there how it happens i'm not even going to venture to explain i i've, I've no idea but i know it happens i mean i i have intuitions like i suddenly the other day i had this intuition to turn down a street i hadn't been down and i just just and i thought what you know what am i doing but like this isn't where i'm going because i like, no you know turn down this street and i turned down this street and there was a store not an exact but it was i've been looking for a certain store and there was one of those stores down this street you know was it coincidence was it intuition so i think i think there's a there's a lot of information which isn't on the surface that we i think we can learn we can learn to to follow it and i think one of the things you know i've learned is as in that example when i do find a little voice tugging at me um i'll follow it and i sometimes say i will never i will never blame myself for following my intuition i may blame myself for not following my intuition but you know if i follow my intuition and nothing happens it's like okay you know i'm i wasn't attached to it no big deal but you know if i don't follow my intuition and someone says oh you should have gone down that street because it's like oh shit why not you know follow my intuition so i think it's um it's something i think we all have and we can learn to recognize it and recognize how it feels recognize its calling yeah i think i think it's really important you talk about kindness that so many religious um or spiritual teachings they all come back to that as a manifestation of the truth the fundamental truth you know being kind and this is something that i had to um reevaluate just recently about kindness being applying to everything in also the food i eat like i was eating not all the time but animals like fish and then i realized that was not kind and then i stopped So would you say that this is a form also of kindness becoming a vegetarian or vegan? It's a it's definitely a form. Yes, I think I think the essence of kindness um you know you mentioned it's in all I think it's in all the religions it's the golden rule is treat treat others as you would like to be treated. And I think what that means is we would you know how I would like to be treated I would like to be treated with love compassion respect understanding i don't want to be made to suffer i don't want to be put in pain and so i think that is the essence of kindness is how do i treat the world this other person so that they feel good and they're not made to suffer that's the essence of it and you can certainly you know apply that to what you eat it's like by eating animals you are in one way creating some suffering there i mean just the fact that they are being killed in order for you to eat them 
So I certainly think you can extend it into that. It's like, it's about, yeah, it's about seeing every other system, living system, as another conscious being um, and not wanting to cause it harm, really. Not wanting to, it's not wanting to cause harm. That's probably, that's probably another way of putting kindness, is not wanting to cause harm. So it's been a lovely conversation. We are almost at the end. Would you like to add anything, Peter, or read a passage in your book? I'd just like to, I mean, I think just what we're talking about, kindness, just one final bit there is how we apply that in our relationships, because that's always where the rubber hits the road. And I think in our relationships, just to bear in mind, you know, how can I, how can I say this, whatever it is I want to say to the other person, even if it's giving them some sort of critical feedback, how can I say this in such a way that they feel loved and appreciated? If we hold that as our intention, we don't always keep to it, but if, if we hold as our intention, how can I communicate, how can I treat this other person so that they feel loved rather than suffering? It changes everything. I mean, when you do this in a, in a couple relationship, it's amazing how a different sort of sweet lovingness enters the relationship. So I would say just, you know, as a final thing, just practice, practice that. How can I, whatever I do or say with this person, how can I do it in such a way that they feel respected and loved? Like they don't feel it. They don't feel attacked. It's so easy to get into attacking. How can I say this that the other person feels loved rather than attacked? What a wonderful message. Thank you so much, Peter, for your mission and these loving messages that we need to be reminded of all the time. Um, hopefully now all the time. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything in a different way? Um, yes. Um, I'd stop doing certain things, Ob obviously things which were an investment in the future. I, I wouldn't do so much. I'd spend more time just appreciating life, appreciating each moment, more time doing that rather than getting caught up in projects. I just spend more time just being grateful for being alive and appreciating there's so many things to appreciate in every moment. What are three things about life you know for sure as of now? It supports us. It really, life is supporting. We get in the way, but life, life is supporting. Um, it's, it's to be enjoyed. Life is to be enjoyed. Just in, to enjoy being alive, even, even in hardship, just to be grateful and enjoy how it feels to be alive. As I, even if you're sick or something, there's still you can enjoy that that being alive. And and the other thing is, you know, the obvious thing of knowing knowing our own lives will end, our own biological lives will end, will come to an end, and not denying that. I think it's really important to whatever comes after. I don't know, but you know, in terms of this particular this particular role this particular thing we're doing now is going to come to an end. And I think so many of the great traditions say we're in denial about that. And that denial holds us back the whole time. And just to be, just to be open to it. I mean, I, I did 
a little I just spent a week recently just looking at death myself in terms of lots of different ways, my own denial, what it is, my beliefs, etc. All that I had a sort of meditation on death from many different aspects. And the conclusion of this whole week at the end, the conclusion I wrote for myself was two words, live life. Just, just live it. You know, we're alive now, live it. And that is so true. Most of us are in denial of that truth, that it will end, and we don't know when exactly. Right. But I mean, from my just exploring it and being with it freed me from it. You think, oh, my God, it's going to be so depressing. But just, go, just getting into it from different perspectives, I ended up with a sense of freedom. It's like, okay, I'm free from that worry. Just live life now. So where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects, Peter? Um, the standard place is my website, which is peterrussell.com. Yeah, that's easy, the spirit. No, peterrussell.com with just two L's on Russell. It's spelled, yeah, R-U-S-S-E-L-L, peterrussell.com. And there's several of my books up there, details of other books, lots of meditations, lots of videos of various talks and audios and lots and lots of essays and things. I mean, the ones you talk about in Seeds of Awakening, they were just some of the things I've written recently on consciousness. There's lots, lots more on my website. And the book, of course, is available on Amazon. It's not in, not in bookstores. I just produced it myself, but it is available on Amazon. And there's an audio version and a Kindle version. Oh, wonderful. I'll have the link on your profile too. Thank you so much again, Peter, and we'll talk soon. Great, thank you. Bye for now. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Peter Russell and his work, please visit peterrussell.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. <laughs>